to some, it may just be a shoebox. But to millions, it is the start of the greatest journey. Traveling the world, sent with prayer. More than eight and a half million shoebox gifts fill the hearts of children from over 100 different countries with hope, faith, and love. This is the story of Operation Christmas Child. There you go. You know, we're in India right now in Hyderabad, and these kids, they've never had a gift like this. And when we can give a gift and do it in the name of Jesus Christ, it means everything in the world. Since 1993, Operation Christmas Child has delivered more than 95 million shoebox gifts in over 130 different countries. This is Christmas! There are so many fun ways to get involved with Operation Christmas Child. Don't forget to pack a shoebox! OCC to NYC. Ow! Lots of great conversations, lots of opportunities to tell people how they can make a difference in the life of a child through a simple shoebox gift. I'm back home in my home church, First Baptist of Garner, doing a shoebox packing party with the whole church. This is fun. We'll see you in the Dominican Republic. It means a lot to be able to, you know, to pack your own shoebox and to actually be able to go to that country where the kids are receiving it and, and to see the kid who's going to be receiving your box. It's going to be an amazing day when, the, when that day comes and I'm face to face with Jesus Christ in heaven. To see some children that received a shoebox who might have never heard or seen Christ's love to them before and, and gotten that shoebox and because of that they're in heaven with me. Living in the midst of the most desperate of circumstances, Ralph, a nine-year-old child from the Philippines, found hope in his shoebox gift. Not only did I receive a gift, but I also pray to receive Christ as my Lord. Knowing God will always love me means everything to me. It's not just you give a box and we walk away. God is using the greatest journey as a discipleship program. And these kids are responding to it. Jesus said that you don't light a candle and put it under a bushel. You put it so the whole world can see. And when a child's life is changed, it cannot be hidden. When you see their faces, their smiles, the joy that, that they get when they open that box, it's almost like they're breathing the Lord in when they open that. It's beautiful. You know, every box uh, is important. They're all different. And uh, put good stuff in it. These kids we're giving these boxes to are kids that have never had a gift in their life. And they need to know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. We want the children of the world to know about God's love. And every child we're going to follow up with them and we're going to disciple them. Thank you for your gift. Every box is important. Get involved. We need your help. We need your support. God bless you. Thank you and a Merry Christmas.
I know a lot of you guys have uh, taken the opportunity in the past few years to be a part of Operation Christmas Child, and we're going to be talking about that as the, as the weeks go by on our weekends, Wednesday nights, and um, give you an opportunity, which I'd really encourage you to do, to, to be a part of something like this. And um, I was thinking about kind of where we're at. You know, we're, we're doing this series. We're, we're in week five uh, of a six-week series looking at what does it mean to be human? And um, one of the things that, uh, as we watch something like this, you know, we oftentimes we kind of feel moved. We're like, you know, that just, it feels unjust. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And um, another thing that's not right is that I didn't take the offering. So <laughs> I see the offering plates. So I'll ask our ushers to come forward then and take the offering. And that would be neat and right and good. So um, go ahead and pass those. Thanks so much for being willing to do that. And sorry about that. Um, as I think about like, why is it that we, you know, when we watch something like this, we kind of go, you know, that, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Um, things like injustice kind of rise up inside of us. And, and we think, you know, we, we, someone should do something. We really should do something. Do you know why I think that is? We're discovering in this series that it's because we're made in the image of a God who is, who is wholly just, who, who, who is a promise keeper who cares for his creation, all these different things that as we look at these different aspects of our own life, we say, you know, he's like this, I made it in his image. So when I see this stuff, it's like God's heart rising up in me and saying, you know, that's, that's not right. Um, each week we've kind of been looking at one of these different qualities um, and the thesis of, this, of these whole six weeks is this idea that when we think about, okay, how do I engage in my world as I go to school or work or have relationships or, you know, as I date, as I get married, whatever it might be, how, as I engage in life as a human being, um, the thesis is that it is only the biblical view of humanity that, that we've kind of tried to concretely picture, only the biblical view of humanity as defaced art, the idea of a masterpiece, that's the image of God, that, has, that violence has been done to, someone has defaced it, that that is the only way you are going to be able to live your life uh, in a meaningful way because it will resonate, resonate with your experience of life, of, of humanity and others and in yourself of, man, people are awesome and people are really screwed up, right? And, and how do I make sense of both of those two? It's this idea that we're finding in, in Scripture and so, and so we've been looking at this whole idea here that in, in humanity, and you know, it's, you know, we looked at this whole idea of we are, we are moral creatures, and God is a moral, God is the moral agent in the universe. God is the logos, he's the logic, he's reason himself. And so we find ourselves being rational, thinking creatures. Um, God is a multi-personal God. We use the, the big theological term trinity, there's, there's this one God with three centers of consciousness. He has forever been this dynamic dance of relationship, even before anything else existed to relate to. And so we find ourselves communal beings, finding fulfillment in community. And so tonight we're going to look at this whole idea that, that we are also... We are creative beings, okay? We work we have activities, um, 
And uh, I was, I've apologized to our local artist who, you know, gave us his nearly $3,000 piece of work to just beat the crud out of every week here. Um, but I said, man, it's, it's doing a great spiritual you know, purpose in life. So thanks, Dave. Um, and so I've been trying to come up with different ways. And, and so I'm going to, I got a little torch here um, to kind of further try to get at this idea. Now, before I, there are four exits, one, two, three, four, green signs. So if this goes bad, walk slowly to the back. Um, but, you know, this is kind of the idea that humanity is this gorgeous piece of art and yet really broken. There's some things that are tragically defaced. And as we think about it, it's that much more tragic because it's not just, like we said earlier, it's not like a, a piece of driftwood, you know, that gets broken. It's, it's a masterpiece that gets vandalized. Okay, that's probably good. I should stop. I should, I should have, oh, okay. Okay. Thank, thank you, guys. Fire's out. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Rick. Yeah, you always have to watch for Pastor Rick, who's kind of high on security. You know, he <laughs> thinks that fire indoors is a big deal or something like that. Um, this is getting us to this idea of the deep tragedy of sin. So when we see injustice, when we see a child starving, when we see someone who is lonely, who is in a deep depression, it's, it, should be the, it should be the greatest tragedy in all of life for us because it's this image bearer who has infinite worth who is broken and crushed. And so this is this kind of feeble picture for us that, that, that reminds us and defines us who we are. So let's, let's go back to the original pages that talks about who we are. If you have your Bibles, open to Genesis. And we're going to read in chapter 1. Boy, that really smells. I don't know if any of you rest of you smell. That burning canvas stinks. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Look for the language that talks about this idea of us being these creative, designing, building creatures. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says, God blessed them, speaking of humanity, and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number. And here's kind of a key phrase. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And in chapter 2, verse 15, jump ahead, we read, Then Yahweh God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden. Look, look at for what purpose? To work it and take care of it. Um, some translations use, use our English word cultivate. To, he put him in the garden to cultivate it. We also get the same word culture from this idea. A culture is your art. It's your architecture. It's your language. It's your beliefs. It's sort of how you do life. Everything as you build and grow, as you fill the earth and subdue, it's your methods of how you do that. And what God is saying is do culture. Build culture that's that's a reflection of the image of god in your own life and what's so interesting here if you if you think about this you go back to genesis and think about where god put adam and Eve. remember where it says he he said he put him in where shouldn't be a trick question we just read it where he put him in a garden okay good 
got a little worried there. Okay, he put him in a garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Yahweh God placed them in a garden. And he tells them to, to build culture, create, expand, take over the world, subdue it. Now, it's not in, a, in some sort of a harsh sense of subduing. It's the idea of a manager, of a steward, because, of course, God is the owner, and he puts humanity in place as these uh, viceroys, as, as these uh, chancers, as, as people who are managers, not the owner. But what's interesting, the very last book of the Bible, not the beginning, but the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, where does humanity find itself? It's not a garden anymore. This time, we're told of a, of a city, of a city that comes down. The language is it coming down. It's the idea that what, what humanity can't quite do, God finishes. That original project of creating culture, building, man, we break it every single time we try. And so, John pictures this idea of God builds it. God finishes it, because it says it comes down from heaven. God comes to be with us. It's not us going to be with him. It says he comes to be with us, and the dwelling of God is with the dwelling of man. This is new creation. And, and so God has this redemptive plan, and this is what's so cool. God has a redemptive plan for the physical cosmos itself. Um, if you want to take a look at this, look, go sometime to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 20, listen to the language that the Apostle Paul uses to refer to not just, you know, individual human salvation or even resurrection of our bodies. He's speaking of cosmic salvation in some sense of the physical cosmos, and I'm using salvation broadly in the sense of recreation. He writes this, Romans 8, 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration. That's that brokenness that happened back in Genesis. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. But he says, in hope, he's saying, here's the hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its, from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory. And then it defines who it is, this, the freedom and glory of us, our freedom and glory. It's going to be restored. And so his whole point is that, here's, here's kind of the big idea. If... If the original creation, the goal of original creation was to go from garden to city, because remember, spread out, subdue, cultivate, right? Design, build, and redemptive, and sort of God's redemptive history also involves this movement from, from garden to city, because he says, you know, in the end, here comes the city, I'm going to do what you couldn't do. What this tells us is something really key. Everything in between... Everything in between the two places, going from garden to city, is what you and I do nine-tenths of our week. Work, activity, create, produce, sell, manage, whatever it is, change diapers. These are all pieces of creating culture, doing life in this idea. And what's so cool is that if this is true, then do you know what everything in between there is? Um, if you look at, if you look at your, uh, your bulletin, we've got kind of like a subtitle that we're using, is this idea of that the sacredness 
the sacredness of work, the sacredness of sexuality, the sacredness of thinking, that all these things are sacred because they're all part of the original design and they're all part of this idea of God's redemptive plan as well. And so that's what's so cool. See, in Genesis 1.28, he says, fill the earth, and he uses this really unique word here, he says, subdue it. Now, the word subdue, when he says that in 128, um, carries with it this idea that yes the creation is good remember god creates and goes that's good that's good that's good it's all good but it's still largely underdeveloped it's all good but it's this idea that there are things waiting to be discovered in the creation listen to how uh tim keller if if you notice on the back of your bulletin i gave you kind of a book suggestion if this is an area that you're like man i would love to read more, think more about this whole idea of my work and, and God and, and, and processing through that. There's a fantastic book by Keller on, on this whole idea of work. Um, it's called Every Good Endeavor. Fantastic read. Keller says this, God left creation. He's talking about when he first created, it's all good and it's perfect. He left creation with deep, untapped potential for cultivation that people were to unlock through their labor through their work. So think about that. That's kind of crazy to think about. That means God had planned from the beginning your, la- your work, your activity, your duties, your job is going to be a part of unlocking this mystery of a world that God has designed. Now I would suggest, this is just kind of a footnote, I would suggest as we think about our eternal state in existence, new heavens, new earth, I wonder if there's something to do with that. The whole universe is somehow rebuilt will will we unlock things beyond this world the the new creation waiting for us what what will our life be like i think it'll still be work it won't be the difficult work it is now but it'll be this creating mining bringing forth god's beauty i think that's very possible based on even what we read here and so now we have to see that this idea you guys of the sacredness of work this is, a, this is a wholly radical idea within the ancient world. Let me just give you a couple examples. Um, you go to ancient creation stories. Um, the Babylonians, the ancient Babylonians, had a, had a creation story or a creation myth called the... Uh, in, let's see, I've got to make sure I say it right here. I better read it. Uh, in, Enuma Elish. The Enuma Elish. And in Tablet 6 of this document... It, it has the god, his name is Marduk. How many of you thought of the dog when I said that? I always think of the dog when I hear that. Um, it has this god Marduk, and he's, he, he's battling this other god. He kills this god and, and tears this god's body apart, and then from this war, the, this fighting, uses this body to create the earth, to create the world. And then he invites the other gods, and he says, you, you guys want to live in this world with me? And they go, no, it's, it's, it's too much work. I mean, look what a mess that is. I, you know, it's, it's upkeep. You know, don't want to do it. And he goes, no, 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 don't worry. I got a plan. Oh, I got this idea. I'll, I'll, I'll invent man, this lowly little creature, and he will work it all so we can live in it. Okay? So even in that, it's like work is this idea that we're, we're sort of these subservient little peons, chess pieces, who are working for the gods to kind of clean up their, their world so they can sit in leisure. Or you go to the ancient Greeks' view of creation, now, the Greeks had this idea of successes, uh, successive stages of life, uh, eras. And so the golden era, the first one, the best one, 
The gods and humanity lived in the world together and no one worked. One of the great poets in Greece, uh, Hesiod says, neither humans nor gods had any work to do. So it might sound a little bit like the biblical Christian, but it's very, very different because work's not there at all. It's all leisure. And here's how work gets introduced. Zeus comes to Pandora and, and, and gives her not a box. We say Pandora's box, but, but gives her a jar and he says, don't open it, because you open it, bad junk is going to come out. Do not open the jar. And of course, okay, you know, kind of open, you know, Pandora's jar opens up, and out of it comes death, and, and you know, deceit, and, and lying, and, and brokenness, and guess what? Yeah, work. Work is a result of Pandora opening the jar to what should have stayed down, we shouldn't have had to deal with, but now we have to work, we have to get jobs, we have to be creative in all these pieces now if you were to how many of you know the first couple words of the book of genesis what does it say in the beginning god what in the beginning god created keller says the first line of the bible opens up with god with dirt under his fingernails isn't that cool i love that the first line of the Bible shows the God of the universe involved in not just any kind of work. He's involved with menial labor. He's working. He's got dirt under his fingernails. And he's building. He's designing. And so this idea that in Genesis, manual labor even, it's done by God himself. And so work all of a sudden, it's dignified. Work takes on a totally different, it's totally different than the Babylonians' view, totally different than the Greeks, totally different than any other view that's out there. And so God puts Adam and Eve in paradise, and in paradise there's, there's relationship, and there's responsibility, and there's rationality thinking, and work. There's creativity even in the garden. And so here's, here's the big idea that I want us to walk, if, if we walk away with nothing else, here's the big idea that I want us to walk away with. I want to suggest that all human work is not just a job. I want to suggest that it is a, and, and here's kind of the key word if you want to write one word down, calling. It is a call on our lives. There's a, uh, there's a Latin word, vocare. Um, it's the root of this that, that we get our word vocation from, okay? Vocare means to call out, to call towards someone, to call someone to you, to, to command, to, to tell someone, but it's, it's the idea of calling them to some activity. Now, um, today, we oftentimes, the, we use the word vocation and job like, like they're the same thing, you know, like they're equivalents. That was not the original sense of this idea. See, a job, I want to suggest, is only a vocation if someone calls you to do it. And if you do it for them rather than for yourself. Now, think about that. Your job that you have, your tasks, whether it be at home, outside of the home, whatever it is that you do, any, down to the smallest activity, it will remain a job unless you reimagine it biblically 
to understand that God calls you to do it. You do it because in, in response to a call and not for yourself ultimately. doesn't mean you don't get fulfillment and pleasure from some things, but it's not ultimately about you. You're doing it in response to someone else. See, this is true even in the most menial, uh, boring, unskilled, non-technical, whatever it might be, job that you can imagine, even something horrible. Have you guys ever seen this show on TV? Um, I I think it was the Discovery Channel. It it was called Dirty Jobs. Have you seen this one? Uh, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe, or Rowe, I think, Mike Rowe. And um, Mike is shown performing all of these really difficult, strange, disgusting, messy um, occupations alongside an actual employee who's, who's doing it. And the show always begins with, with, with this quote from Roe when he's usually like knee deep in junk or he's digging out, you know, bat poo somewhere in a cave. And it always starts with this same, with this same line. He goes, my name's Mike Rowe and this is my job. I explore the country looking for people who aren't afraid to get dirty. Hard-working men and women who earn an honest living doing the kinds of jobs that make civilized life possible. That's kind of an interesting piece there. Make civilized life possible for the rest of us. Now get ready to get dirty, he says. Um, one time uh, I, I heard uh, Mike talking. The show's been canceled, I think, and you know they did the eighth season was like, dirty jobs down under and he was in Australia and they've got overseas versions and stuff but afterwards he was asked okay you've done tons of jobs like top five worst jobs like what are the top five worst jobs for you that 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 you stepped into and so he said the first one was a sewer inspector uh in the sewers of San Francisco because he said what made it so tough is just like the streets the sewers run up and down and you know you can imagine how that would that flow would be quite memorable uh, he said a snake wrangler, and he said you grab these snakes and you have to make them throw up, you know, grab their mouth and throw up, and then you look at their puke underneath the microscope, and make sure it's a certain, you know, sort of thing, and all this stuff. And he said they've got all these teeth, and they bite, not poisonous, but they bite you, it's awful. Uh, the third and fourth was a chicken sexer and a horse inseminator. I'll just let you imagine what that might involve. Um, a, a shark suit tester. Can you imagine that? A, a shark suit tester. Apparently, you put on this suit, this suit and you hop in the water and, and you create kind of a, bud, a blood bath of, of all this chum and then you, you kind of wait for sharks to come and you let them bite you sort of thing. And I don't know. I, I guess if you, know, you, if you live, the suit worked, I suppose. But um, see, from a Christian perspective, you guys, all work, whether you're in sewers or in skyscrapers, is a part of the created order. It's part of that yellow line there. It's all bringing flourishing to humanity. It all helps humanity flourish. Um, Down to the most menial job, right? Unless someone cleans your counters at home, you're going to die. It's called hygiene, right? Um, It all adds to human flourishing in some way. Now, it might not be a desirable job, all these ones and, you know, Mike Rose, dirty jobs, they're not desirable. They might not even pay a whole lot, but they're all part, this is what scripture wants us to see, they're all, every single one is a part of the created order, and it adds to human flourishing. And see, there, there are gospel implications to this idea, if this is true, gospel implications to how you do life, how you do your work. Because it all has dignity, and think about this for a second. The Bible says, 
All work has dignity. It's all a part of this going from garden to city. Okay? God has done the most menial job in the world. Jesus says, one, pl one place my God has been working, my Father's been working, and he is still working. Okay? Work is not a bad thing that God stays away from in order for us to do it. So if it, if it all has dignity, and if God is no respecter of persons, the implication is you cannot think of yourself, depending on your job, more highly than anyone else. And if you do, you're not following the gospel. If you think of your job in relation to someone else who, who, who comes in to change the trash, or if you're changing trash and, and you bring it out to the guy and he's in the dump scene, you can't think of any levels. There's no caste system within a biblical worldview. Um, I remember uh, one time it kind of hitting home to me. Uh, I spend some time over at, over at the hospital just, just doing hospital visitations. You know, that's part of being a being in a pastoral role and praying with people and visiting people. And what's so interesting to me is to see what is a caste system, and I, hate, I don't mean to rag on, on, on this profession, but within the medical community. You've, you've got the high up docs, and, and then you've got you know, the lower docs, and then you've got the ones who are following around you know, to become docs, and you've got the charge nurses, and then you have this nurse, and you have the other nurse, and then you, you have the one out of the station, and then you have the orderlies. You've got people changing beds and all this sort of thing. And watch, if you're ever in there, watch how they talk to each other. I have seen nurses who will, you know, a doctor's in the room, and they're very attentive. And, oh, yes, absolutely, of course. And they walk out in the hall, and here comes someone changing sheets, and, and they just kind of put their head down like this and go, because, oh, that's, that's beneath me. I don't talk to those people. No, that's not a biblical word. The gospel shatters that. It does not allow for there to be any levels of superiority because there's no job that is more honorable. It might pay more, but it's not more honorable. God doesn't look upon any job as, wow, I like that one better. That one's higher. I esteem that. I, God doesn't honor one stinking job more than another. They all have dignity because we have this God with dirt under his fingernails right from the start we saw earlier in genesis that that work work was not the result of sin and, and the curse but there there was a word remember this word right here and let me kind of contrast it with uh with work toil right now toil is what the scripture speaks of when, when sin enters and God says, this working out was really, really good, now it's like work plus something else. Now it's work plus toil. And toil is the idea that you're going to do it, but it's not going to come easy anymore. There's going to be, it's not just gardening. Use the picture of now there's going to be weeds <laughs> in the garden. I, this summer, I, like, I neglected my, my front and backyard horribly. And, and, and then right when it started getting cold, I was like, I should work on my yard. And so, you know, you go out there and it's, it's just, it's awful. You know, it's just, it's just a mess. So it, it, it's like worse now doing it because I've waited. So I'm pulling that many more weeds and, you know, putting, I'm putting mulch in right before the snow comes. And I realize, what an idiot I am. And that's just stupid. Why would you put mulch in before the w snow comes? But I've got a dog now and, and he's running through the mud. So I want mulch covering and all this stuff. But I don't know why I was even saying that. Oh, <laughs> it was kind of by the sweat of, because that's, that's the other nine tenths of my life, right, that I deal with. But now he says, it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that, that, that you do this whole work thing. It's really interesting. Um, Vishal Mangalwadi, who, who, who is an Indian born in the Far East, a Christian philosopher, he's a writer, 
um, lecturer, social reformer. He grew up in the Far East. He made a fascinating historical observation. Vishal noticed that while, while technology um, for inventing new things has been observed around the world for centuries, a lot of cultures, a lot of different places, he writes this, it was developed and harnessed most often by Christian monks, this Eastern man says. And he says, what's really interesting is why. And he said, there was a theological reason why technology came about so much in these Christian areas. And he says, the monks reason that because the Bible distinguished between work, which is a good thing, God does that, and toil, that's a bad thing, that's part of the curse. He says, therefore, we should use our creative reason to help liberate people from the curse of toil. Isn't that interesting? He said, they saw technology as a part of the creative, redemptive work of following Jesus. To care about technology, to want to make things, to want to change things for the person who's on their knees in the dirt. It's like, oh, man, how could we do this better? He says, that came as a result of people thinking hard about the gospel. They became inventors, and because they, they said, toil is not good, we, and we want to liberate people from that, because people are made in the image of God, and they're called to it. Um, one author wrote this, he says, this is why, even though the horse was not native to Europe, it was the European peasants who leveraged the horse through the invention of horseshoe, the tandem harness, and the horse collar. Goes on to say, the first recorded use of a windmill to grind grain was by an abbot, someone who was in charge of a monastery, Abbot Gregory of Tours in the 6th century, and it was to free his monks so that they could pray. Mechanical clocks, he goes on to say, were invented by monks because they needed to know when to pray. Communal prayer after dark meant everyone needed to share the same time. And of course, for centuries, it was, it was the church from which villages learned their time for this reason. We first learn about the invention of eyeglasses in a sermon around 1300. It was monks who required them so they were able to pour over ancient texts then and what, what caused the Renaissance is the discovery of these ancient texts. A professor from Stanford University, um, Lynn White, wrote this. The humanitarian technology that our modern world has inherited from the Middle Ages was not rooted in economic necessity, she writes. For this necessity is inherent in every society. The labor-saving power machines of the latter Middle Ages were produced by, and listen to what she says, were produced by the, the uh, implicit theological assumption, meaning there's some theological idea assumed, quote, uh, assumption of the infinite worth of even the most degraded human personality. That's the image of God. She's saying these people had this idea that every single person down, down to the surf working on his knees digging ditches was, was a reflection of the image of God. And so technology came about because they pondered, they thought about, they applied the gospel to it and they said, what does it mean to think in a gospel-centered way? It was about distinguishing between toil and work as they thought hard, between good and bad. And see, the danger that the church has oftentimes promoted about work and, and, and pastors do this. We do this all the time. Um, I think it's a little bit less than it, than it used to be, but it's, it's still around. 
the assumption was that if, if you really want to be sold out for Jesus, what should you do? If you really want to be sold out. Come on, you know it. Say it. Go into the ministry, right? Become a pastor, priest, missionary. If, you're, if you don't really want to be sold out for Jesus, just give us your money and we'll do the work, right? I mean, seriously, that has been a model of when people speak of I'm a calling, has God called you? What do they 98% of the time refer to? Those few tiny little slivers of this. It's a piece of this, but it's certainly not all of that. Why is it that we don't use the language of calling to refer to carpentry or architecture? It's because of this idea that the church has gotten away from the biblical gospel-centered idea that all work is dignified. All work is a calling. It can be a calling. It can be a vocation by God. And so that's, I think that has changed some. I think it is changing some. And the new idea, which I would say is the old biblical idea, is that the best thing you can do is, uh, with your faith is to go get a job. <laughs> go get a job and be two things. Be a thoughtful but non, uh, a triumphalistic, beating people over the head with the Bible kind of thing. Believer, um, remember we live in a pluralistic culture. You, you're not going to you know, capture the whole culture and... Um, you know, have this kind of militaristic kind of view. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. There's this idea, the church is not the state. So, so be a thoughtful, non-triumphalistic Christian, but also, secondly, a non-assimilating Christian. To assimilate means you just go in and you look like everyone else, or you live like everybody else. Um, see, the Bible gives a very different perspective on what it means to be human on what human purpose is, what human life is, the meaning of sexuality, all, all these pieces. Um, and go into the major cultural industries. If you want, the best thing you can do with your faith is to go into whatever major cultural industry you feel God has hardwired you for. And see, for the first time in a long time, I, I, would, I, I would suggest based on what I'm hearing and reading, what people are saying, is that there is a critical mass of Christians who are intentionally, non-triumphalistically, and non-assimilating going into some of these major cultural industries, places like Hollywood, and, and going in there, evangelical Christians, and they don't assimilate or else they look like everyone else and they're, they're not salt and light. But again, they also don't go in in this you know, triumphalistic way and... and, and you know, be offensive, and, and they're fired because of what they say on the second day, and they go, praise God, I was fired because I'm sick. No. Um, they're making an impact. They're being salt and light in a powerful way. This is what I think really is behind Jesus' language when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt gets warped slowly into meat, and it starts this chemical reaction of change and preservation. He says, you're the light. Don't stand outside and throw rocks into the dark. Be this light inside there that's, that's in it, and it's transforming it, but it's, it's not in this adding to the offense of the gospel. Um, Dorothy Sayers uh, has, has a short essay. You can look this essay up online. It's, it's for free out there. It's called Why Work? And let me kind of, I want to, I need to close here pretty quickly because I'm running a little late, but let me, let me just read a, a sentence or two by her. Dorothy Sayers says, and, and this is so cool, I love this. How can anyone remain interested in a religion 
which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of life. Know what that means? See, what she's saying is the church oftentimes, all it talks about is what you do when you're at church. You know, the hour on Sunday morning or something like that or on that day. You know, you need to serve here, you need to... Now, is being at church important? Is being a part of the community, the, you know, God's people important? Absolutely. But that's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is work discipleship. I, I was having a conversation with, with someone this week, and, and they asked a question. They said, how come, how come we don't hear more about the first 30 years of Jesus' life? Like, what was he doing? You know, the lost years, we call them. And later, as I thought about that, you know, the Bible does say uh, Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and certainly that's the cross. But long before that, I think he was learning obedience through suffering. I don't think those are the lost 30 years. What, what was Jesus doing the first 30 years? Well, he was the ideal human, we read in Scripture, right? I'm guessing he was doing this. I'm guessing 30 years were not accidental. I'm guessing 30 years were significant for shaping the Son of God in his humanity. Do you think, if, if that's even possible, do you think it's even possible that God has you in, in your job, in your school, in your setting, in your home, as a homemaker, whatever, do you, is it possible that he has you there in order to shape you in, in a discipleship way? How many of you would say, I struggled with patience this week in my other nine-tenths? Um, I struggled with anger, I struggled, you know, what? You guys, that's discipleship stuff. God calls you into that part of your life, calls you as a vocation, if you will reimagine it that way. Let me just end with these, a couple words of Dorothy Sayers here, because she says it better than I can, and then, and then we'll close here. She says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to extorting him, I'm sorry, to exhorting him not to be drunk or disorderly in his leisurely hours, and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Isn't that cool? To be a follower of Christ means you're the best darn carpenter there is. You do your best work possible. And she goes on to say, let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. You are called to serve God in your school, in your classroom, in your home, in your job, in not outside of it. That's, that's not where discipleship lies. Discipleship lies when you go to work, when you have a boss being overly demanding, whatever. That's where discipleship happens. That's where God is shaping you. That's where God is beginning to transform his world, going from garden to city. And she ends, she ends with this. When you find a man who is a Christian praising God by the excellence of his work, do not distract, she's talking to the church, okay? She's saying, hey, church, when you find, like, the, like a volunteer out there, and they're a really good volunteer, when you find someone who is a Christian praising God by the excellence of his work, do not distract him and take him away from his proper vocation, carpentry or management or whatever it might be, to address religious meetings and open church bazaars. <laughs> Let him serve God in the way in which God has called him. If you take him away from that, he will exhaust himself in an alien technique and lose the capacity to do his dedicated work. 
was dedicated to work. You guys, God has called you. God has, God has made you creative in ways that he did not make the person next to you creative. And sometimes he calls each one of us to be in a setting where we don't even feel that creative. We're doing some widget thing or, or we're changing you know, the eighth diaper of the day, whatever it might be. And you're doing something that feels so menial. It feels so endless. It feels so purposeless. And the gospel just blows it out of the picture. And he says, it's going to be a ridiculous, hard, horrible job as long as you think it's a job. But, but what if you could reimagine that God is actually calling you to it? There's a vocare behind it. There is one calling. And you realize I'm doing it not for my boss. I'm doing it for him. The book of Colossians talks a lot about this. And I'm doing this not even for myself. You know, I mean, some of you guys in jobs, you're like, man, I, I love my job. And that's a blessing. That's wonderful. But if, you, if you're doing it for yourself, it's going to crush you someday. It's going to fall apart. It won't meet your needs. If you find your identity and your value in it, you'll die someday. It, 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 it will crush you. It will not fulfill you. But if you view even that as a, this is a calling in my life. It's something that God has given me. Yeah, to be fulfilled and I get some great things out of it. But if I'm not doing it for him, I'm going to miss the whole point. And I'm not going to be a part of this vocare work going from garden to city. And I'll be for focused more on the toil, the difficulty of it. And I'll miss maybe, maybe the most important part, the idea that God's shaping me. He's discipling me through it all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as, as we have, as we've turned our attention, Lord, to, to Scripture, your story, your story of our story, really, is what it is. God, would you help us to, to begin kind of reimagining where it is that we find ourselves nine-tenths of our week? Would you, for anyone in this room who has this false kind of sacred, secular distinction, there's going to church and there's reading my Bible and praying, and that's sacred and then there's going to school or or work or paying the bills or taking care of my kids or making meals and that's secular god would you break down that distinction help us to have a gospel-centered worldview which would understand that all of life is a vocare it is a calling from the one who matters and who when we respond to that calling all of a sudden, we enjoy all those things. We can enjoy. We can find joy in them, even the most difficult thing. And maybe most importantly, we can learn obedience through difficulty. We can be shaped into the image of Christ. God, that's where we want to live. Thank you for calling us upward. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for giving us design and creativity and thoughts. Help us even, God, tonight as we walk out of this place, maybe to have new attitudes going into our job tomorrow. Help us to have maybe new thoughts, new ideas of, of ways that we can express our creativity in ways that we would find joy and ways we would feel like, man, I'm flourishing. This is great. You are that God who can do that. And we love you. We thank you for that. We thank you for work. But we look forward to the day when you remove toil. And in between, God, we work we're working on the garden. We're looking forward to the city. And we love you, God. Thank you for your son, Jesus, for, for your Holy Spirit who empowers all these thoughts, all these actions, all this thinking. Go with us this week. And we pray this in Jesus' matchless, awesome, powerful, 
name. And we all sit together as a family. Amen. Amen. Hey, I want to invite our, our uh, prayer team to be up front. Um, if, if there's things going on in your lives, we would we just consider it an honor to be able to pray with you. Um, if you've got kids, go get your kids. Bring them back. We've got goodies and snacks in the back, I think. That, that table looks kind of bare to me, but hopefully maybe it's imaginary food. Pretend you're eating food. Um, no, I think there's something back there. Um, hang out. <clears throat> be community. Love you guys. We'll see you this weekend as we continue our Ten Commandments series. Have a great week at work.